So it's about understanding how human beings behave and exploiting those mechanisms to encourage people to make the right decisions. Today I sit down with writer, photographer and filmmaker Laura Dodsworth, author of A State of Fear, how the UK government weaponized fear during the COVID-19 pandemic. Most of the public do not understand the behavioural psychology techniques that are used on them. We certainly haven't signed consent forms. Governments, in Britain and beyond, use behavioural psychology and subliminal methods to secretly manipulate the public, Dodsworth says. In the UK, there's a government unit dedicated precisely to such activities. And I think that we will have muscle memory from this. We're trained into a certain level of compliance and we've been trained to think of lockdown as a response. This is American Thought Leaders and I'm Janja Kellek. Before we start the interview, I have a message from the sponsor of this American Thought Leaders podcast. Inflation is on the rise and interest rates are also increasing significantly. If you want to start diversifying your hard-earned savings against inflation, you can call American Hartford Gold. They can show you how to protect your savings and retirement accounts by diversifying your portfolio with physical gold and silver. All it takes to get started is a short phone call, and they'll have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. They'll make it easy and they are one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first order. So don't wait. Call them now at 855-862-3377. That's 855-862-3377. Or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Laura Dodsworth, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you so much for having me. Well, and I should say finally, uh, because I've been following your work for some time, and you know, it's been almost a year now since you published your book, A State of Fear. Um, you know, focused on how the UK government used fear, for lack of a better term, to, it, let's call it incentivize the population, I guess, or maybe you wouldn't use the word incentivize. Um, you actually, in the book, I remember you said that you wrote this book out of fear, but ostensibly not the fear that most people experienced itself. So tell me a little bit about that to start us off. Yeah, that's true. Um... Yes, the title of the book is A State of Fear, How the UK Government Weaponised Fear During the COVID-19 Pandemic. Quite a strong title. And um, incidentally, I don't think I've said this in an interview yet. Um, although my publisher very much wanted me to write this book, encouraged me, gave me the idea in a way, um, after our conversations about the use of behavioural science of the pandemic, when they actually got the manuscript with my subtitle, I, he, he pretty much had a stroke. And he's like, we, we can't say this. We can't say the UK government has weaponized fear. But yes, that is the, the hypothesis of the book, even if it was supposedly in our best interests. Now, I didn't have the same kind of fear about the virus as I think a lot of people shared at the beginning. I did have a little bit of fear because you know it was unknown and 
obviously the measures we were taking were so extreme and so draconian that in themselves they made me think, well, what is this? How bad is it going to be? I remember stocking up on tinned food because I thought, well, gosh, if my children get ill as a single parent, how how are they how are they feed themselves because we're not allowed to leave the house and get help from the normal suspects you know sister friends mother and my children mock me now that i made them wash their hands when they came in the house for you know the first couple of weeks um, so they like to remind me that i was i was a little captured by the fear but no i was actually frightened by the fear around me and because I had tuned into videos and writings quite early on by quite a broad range of um, epidemiologists and scientists, such as Dr. John Ianardis, um, Professor Knutowski, Dr. Wolfgang Wodarg, I had maybe a more balanced view of, of the virus. I only had the same data that everybody in government had. You know, we had quite early data that um, this virus was very stratified the risk was very stratified according to age and to clinical uh, comorbidity but the lockdown was such an extraordinary measure that that frightened me and i have to say that while a lot of people now adopt a kind of a centrist position they'll say i'm talking about the uk where we had three full lockdowns and a whole swathe of other restrictions and it was different in different devolved parts of the union but we had the first lockdown and the second and and the third in january 21. a lot of people will say well i went along with the first one because we we just didn't know well i didn't go along with the first one because actually for some reason right from the beginning it struck me as completely immoral to say to people who are healthy and no reason to believe they're infectious that they can't leave the house to work to earn a living to provide for their family let alone to do all the other normal things that we consider to be basic human rights like have relationships um go to a place of education place of worship so the lockdown was such a tough and authoritarian measure and so unprecedented and the fear around me, you could kind of smell it in the air, that that made me frightened of authoritarianism. And on the 23rd of March, my goodness, it's nearly two years now. It's, uh, we're coming to the two year anniversary. The 23rd of March, when Boris Johnson made an extremely stern address to you the nation that we stay must home. stay at home. And it was very, very wartime, very Churchillian, trying to be Churchillian. That that in itself, put the fear of God into me. And I would try to balance and rationalize that fear and, and talk to other people, you know, well, what do you think this was going on? Um, do you think this is an appropriate response? And try to talk to people that I felt would have different perspectives to me and just do as much reading up as I could. And then in May of 2020, some minutes were published, which were a truly extraordinary insight into the decision-making within government. The minutes of a SPIB meeting. Now, SPIB is the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Behaviour, and they provide psychology and behavioural science advice to the government when the government poses it questions. And in this document, it said that people might not adhere to the lockdown rules because they understood the risk for their demographic and the sense of perceived threat needed to be raised. Essentially, these psychologists and behavioral scientists suggested that people would need to be frightened to follow the lockdown rules. And that really sent me off on a, on a journey to understand how fear was weaponized, even if it was in our best interests.
Well, that's incredible. I mean, so many things to what you just said, right? Because of course, someone here is deciding and to some extent behind the scenes what indeed is in the best interest. Why not just be transparent about it? Um, I think that nudge and behavioural science has become a really integral uh, part of government business. It's become how governments do business. And that's not just here in the UK. That's most definitely there in the United States as well. And in countries all around the world, you see uh, behavioural sci science is a way to avoid regulation. It's it's a way to avoid debate. It's a way to nudge people into being model citizens. And this carries through from everything to cutting down smoking, trying to work towards obesity targets, climate change behaviour and lockdowns. I mean, it's it's really, well, and also recovering taxes and, I mean, so many different parts of government business. I think it's actually a muscle that government naturally flexes now. So, and maybe just define nudge, because I don't think this is a common term here in the US yet, although I have seen it in some, I think it's, I've seen it in headlines in the some UK media and so forth. Sure. Well, nudge is about choice architecture. It's about nudging you into a different form of behavior. Essentially, the premise of it is that human beings don't make rational decisions. Now, this you don't have to look on this as a bad thing because you can't actually necessarily rationally assess every single choice you make. So there are biases in how we in how we behave. And so it's about understanding how human beings behave and exploiting those mechanisms to encourage people to make the right decisions. And this is where I think it gets tricky that policymakers and the behavioural scientists advising them decide what being a model citizen is, they decide what being good is, and they nudge you. Now, nudges are, they're subliminal, they work below the level of consciousness. An example would be um, a, if let's just say your government wants to encourage you to eat more fruits and vegetables because your government believes that's better for you, let's not go into whether it is or not, and there's no evidence, but never mind. Let's just say they think that's good for you. They could... Uh, make fruits and vegetables very cheap and heavily taxed sugary goods. But a nudge would be putting fruit to eye level in the supermarket. It's a little bit more subtle. And it's part of behavioral psychology and behavioral science. Well, except that the kind of nudging that happened here, I mean, I, you, you sent me a few of the ads and some headlines, frankly, that were used in the UK. I mean, that was not nudging. That was like, uh, you know, a cartoon hammer over the head kind of nudging, right, from my perspective. Well, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, nudge is used as an umbrella term for all types of behavioural psychology, but that's not necessarily right. But there are various appeals within nudge and behavioural psychology. Fear. Um, I sent you examples of ads that we had in the UK. I mean, the other quite egregious forms of behavioural psychology that were exploited to make people do the right thing in the pandemic were shaming, making people feel ashamed, scapegoated, othered, and also using social norms. So encouraging people into collective behaviour and groupthink and behaving like the herd. So um, one of the examples of the ad I sent you was called Look Him in the Eyes. So one of the taglines was Look Him in the Eyes and Tell Him You Never Break the Rules. Now the um, visual is, uh, is very close up on the face. Um, it's somebody who's very ill. Um, their eyes are big. They're looking at you. This is to make you feel scrutinized. Uh, you're being watched. They're wearing a mask. Uh, not a, a face mask, a face covering, but an oxygen mask because uh, they need assistance breathing. Um, I think that ad had the chevrons. We had lots of yellow and black chevrons, which are like disaster cordons on the ads here. So it means you know, danger, do not cross, stay back, be cautious. Um, it also looks like wasps, this stings, this hurts. Um, 
And that particular campaign, you know, that came out at a time not very long after our Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, Matt Hancock, was actually having an affair in his office. So while we were being told not to break the rules, we know that government minister, a government minister and other politicians were breaking the rules. So it was very much for you, the little people. Be scared. This is how well you could look. And not only are you at risk, you are the risk because it's your rule breaking that will make people ill. Um, other ads like don't let a cup of coffee cost lives. Um, hanging out in the park with your mates can kill. Don't kill granny. I, did you have don't kill granny in the US? Um, we had variants of that. I don't know if I've seen the ads. I mean, I, I, I try, you, you talk a little bit about inoculating yourself from fear. Uh, I tried to not, uh, let's say, imbibe the strong fear messaging, which was quite considerable here as well, actually. Um, but no one's done this kind of rigorous study of how it, how it was done or how these behavioral units actually function here in the US or Canada, which is my home country for that matter. Right. So Don't Kill Granny wasn't ever a strep plan on an ad. However, it's something that was very much pushed through the media. Our, our health secretary, Matt Hancock, actually used the term don't kill granny. So imagine that pressure, that burden that's put onto young people. Now, some young people did lose their grandparents. Was it their fault? No, they did not kill their granny. How did granny die? Probably in a care home or catching it in a hospital, to be fair. And that's no criticism intended at people who work in hospitals. Hospitals these days are like cities for infections. They're huge. They're not ideal places to contain a respiratory airborne virus. So these ads put a huge burden onto the individual that you can catch it and you can spread it. In fact, that's another tagline of an ad. Anyone can catch it, anyone can spread it. The problem with that is it wasn't really true. As we know, um, the risk was very stratified according to age and clinical condition. And we also know from studies that younger people were disproportionately frightened of COVID. So it had a huge impact on them, not least in terms of not ascending school and the results of the restrictions, but the responsibility and the, the mental health burden of the fear campaign. Well, the, the, the ad that struck me in particular from the ones that you sent was one of I think, three young men basically hanging out in a park or something like this and saying, you know, this is somehow you, you could kill somebody here by doing this. And, you know, wow, given the, what we already knew about the risk stratification, you know, for that age group, uh, you know, you wonder to yourself, how is this even is I mean, could this be legal? It doesn't sound reasonable, but could, is it even like acceptable, right? It's amazing what has passed for acceptable. I mean, every single one of these ads gave me a little whiplash of shock. I just couldn't believe it. And this kind of messaging doesn't only live on the billboards or on the magazine pages or on your social media stream. It comes out into the real world. That's the point of advertising. It influences our brains and our behavior. That's the point. So one of my children said that a teacher shouted, in the corridor to a student who wasn't masked, you're killing people. Now, of course, the student who wasn't wearing a mask, probably momentarily in a corridor, had killed nobody. If they'd killed somebody, it would, of course, be a police matter. So the teacher's hysteria, probably they, they can't control because they've been bombarded 24-7 by um, calamitous media coverage and these government Adverts, the government and Public Health England became two of the biggest advertisers in the United Kingdom in 2020 and 2021. They didn't spend that money because it doesn't work. 
it does work. Now, you know, you say, was this acceptable? Well, some people will believe that using fear appeals is acceptable in a pandemic. Others might not. It's not a debate we've had. We, I think we've really deviated from acceptable psychological best practice. There are psychologists who wrote to the British Psychologist Society here in the UK, which very much brushed them off. Um, and they've also written to uh, Parliament to ask for an inquiry into these behavioural science. And I've done the same thing, again, being brushed off. But I do think that ethical codes have been breached. After all, if this was a laboratory experiment, if psychologists were trying to frighten people in a lab, we would have to sign consent forms. So most of the public do not understand the behavioural psychology techniques that are used on them and they don't know it's happening and how much of their taxpayers' money is spent on it. We certainly haven't signed consent forms. What's more, in this laboratory, we wouldn't have been allowed to leave until we were happy. You know, the end of the experiment probably would have involved watching a rom-com and having a slice of chocolate cake. You know, we're not, we're not there yet. <laughs> I've not had my chocolate cake. So um, students conducting experiments would go through a more rigorous ethics process than advisors working for the government did, in my opinion. So wait, so you see this, I, and I think you may have even said this in the book, that you almost see this like a giant Milgram experiment or something. And maybe if, if I recall correctly, maybe just sort of explain what, what's going on there in the Milgram experiment for those uninitiated. Mm, so Stanley Milgram was a psychologist who um, conducted a test into how um, obedient people would be to authority. And it involved uh, laboratory psychologists who were dressed as uh, well, what they dressed as? No, they were dressed like uh, laboratory um, technicians asking people to inflict an electric shock on somebody else for performing a test. And if they passed, that was great. And if they failed, they'd have to administer an electric shock, which became um, sequentially more painful, even to fatal degrees. And what the experiment found is that most people will give someone else an electric shock if they're told to. So you should read the book. Uh, which I think is called the Milgram Experiment, which is very good. In fact, my publisher publishes it, which is uh, just an interesting coincidence. Um, I don't think that the government or SPY-B or the Nudge Unit has been consciously conducting a Milgram experiment. It's just felt a bit like one because we've seen how far people will go in obeying authority um, and not necessarily questioning the ethics of it. You know, you noticed something a lot quicker than I did, okay? So, you know, I was looking through the vantage point of watching what was happening in China and understanding that there was this, you know, incredible censorship and silencing of scientists who were, you know, let's call it close to the virus in some way, trying to say something about it. Um, and there was, in fact, you know, a very serious outbreak in China, a lot more people dying than the officials were willing to admit, which is kind of part of the course over there, right? And then, of course, they had these, you know, videos of people kind of falling over ostensibly from COVID, right, which were broadcast millions of times everywhere. So this, you know, possibly part of a fear campaign coming from there. I, we, don't, we don't know. Um, but the, the point was that it actually did seem like something very serious and very scary coming from a place which would never admit it, in fact, quite the opposite, right? So um, I guess it, I can imagine at the beginning, right, a lot of people thinking the worst, right? 
And, and then so the question is, in my mind, but then very quickly, these, this age, strat, age stratification data, I think we already had that by April of 2020, I believe. February. So, February, okay, well, <laughs> there you go. So, so that, that, I mean, okay, the, the question is, was it already too late to turn off the fear in the age of, you know, kind of insane social media where your devices that your head is in, however many hours a day, are kind of weaponized to capture your attention and kind of, you know, have you imbibe all this information? Was that enough, right, that it couldn't be turned off? That was one of the things that struck me as I was watching this, right? Yeah, I think that's possible. I mean, I'm purely speculating, giving my own feelings, literally my feelings about this, but I think the world went into panic mode. Now those original videos that came out of China, they're really interesting. Were they some sort of psyop? Uh, were they a prank? I don't know what they were, was, they were not real. You know, we've seen what COVID looks like in the rest of the world where cameras are allowed. And we know that people don't just, you know, they're not just standing in a bank and they go and then be immediately surrounded by crowds of people in white hazmat suits. This is not what COVID looked like. But this was, the, this was the image of it that came out of China and there were multiple videos. And you know, I tried to track them down. By the time I did, they'd be, the original sources were removed. But certainly here in the UK, they had already been shared by multiple mainstream media outlets. You know, The Sun and The Mail, our two biggest newspapers. And the thing is, you know, if you're in the newsroom, you're like, gosh, this is, uh, this is hot stuff. This is, this is clickbait. And how much effort can you go to to verify the source of a random video that's come out of China? So it was, it was published wisely or not. I don't know. But then it shares and it proliferates. So the panic spreads in, in multiple ways. That's just one way. And then I think it became difficult to stop. I mean, here in the UK, the original plan was that we would um, cocoon the elderly. It was a form of focus protection. But the use of the term herd immunity really got people's backs up here in the UK. That drew fire in the British media. So funnily enough, it was actually the head of the Nodge unit who used this term first on BBC News inadvertently, not knowing what he would unleash. Um, Dr. David Kalpen, who heads up the Pavel Insights team, referred to how the elderly would needed to be cocooned until there was herd immunity that had gone through the rest of the population. Well, people went nuts about this. And I think it's because the word herd conjures up ideas of animals going for slaughter. It's dehumanising. Um, and they didn't like to think that they could just be given up in a, in a culling for the greater good. But anyway, people didn't like the term herd immunity, but of course, that's how pandemics end, one way or another, through both natural infection in the community and, of course, in our modern age, through vaccination. That's how pandemics end. We, we reach a state of um, detente with the virus where it's endemic and um, sufficient people have been infected or vaccinated that it can't um, accelerate in the same way. But by giving up on the idea of herd immunity, all we then did was put ourselves on an altar of behavioural science to herd psychology. Because as the behavioural scientists here in the UK have put in documents, we have a powerful tendency to conform. So they use behavioural psychology techniques in order to make people comply with plan B, which was lockdown. Well, and the, the really interesting thing, and I, I still think there's a lot of people that aren't aware of this, is that lockdowns are just a gross departure from normal, effective pandemic policy. 
And in fact, you know, at this point, when we know what's, what's in the data across, you know, many examples or a, few, or a few examples of places that didn't lock down, just following the original pandemic, you know, tried and tested pandemic guidelines probably would have been a much better idea. I think many planners um, would agree with you, people that have got experience working in the past here in the UK with the Civil Contingencies Unit, um, people who've worked on pandemic preparedness before. You're absolutely right. Lockdowns weren't just not in pandemic plans. They were contraindicated because there isn't sufficient evidence they work and the harms, the collateral damage were known and could be estimated. So it was it was a big departure. Basically, the world copied brand new and unevidenced policy that came out of China. How did this happen? And I mean, this is kind of part of your, I, 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 this, is, this is your meditation, frankly, throughout this book, right? It's just trying to figure this out. But why don't you give me, you know, sort of the, the best thumbnail of what you think actually happened that kind of led us into this, this current reality? So I have to be very clear that my book is not about why we locked down and it's not even really about lockdown, but it was impossible to write a book about the tactics used to encourage compliance with lockdown without talking about lockdown. So there is an appendix in the book on lockdowns and it's called Why Lockdowns Don't Work. So you'll kind of get the gist about where, you know, um, what my colours are that I'm nailing to the mast. And I put in references to the World Health Organization and also some British plans which show that lockdowns weren't part of the plan. It's quite possible that it was a panicked response copying China. More than that, I really wouldn't know. My book is very much about how we were um, exhorted and nudged and manipulated into obeying the lockdown rules, into adhering with it and, and, and increasing that compliance. I think of this as um, a house on fire. I think I think lockdowns and what we've done have been one of the greatest acts of self-destruction societies could inflict upon themselves. For me, it's been horrific to watch. But you don't know what's caused a fire until the embers have cooled. So I really tried to limit myself in this book to the how and not to the why. The big why I'm left with really is, is human psychology. And I haven't come at this as a psychologist or a behavioral scientist. I've come at this as a, you know, afresh as a journalist, a creative and a writer, because epidemics will come and go, but our psychology is here to stay. Although I don't know why lockdowns were chosen, what's worried me is that people can be persuaded to follow such draconian rules and can be frightened to such a degree that they will do almost anything. Now, fear of an infection and a pandemic is natural. This is a natural, hard-baked human response, but it was put on steroids by the government's handling of it. Now, if they can do that for lockdown, how else, you know, what else can happen? And I think that we will have muscle memory from this. We're trained into a certain level of compliance and we've been trained to think of lockdown as a response. And there are so many learnings to come out of this. But my, my interest is in that, that kind of essential question of human condition. What makes us do what we do? And really, that's probably what made me write this book. For me, it seems that fear was the big and the enduring story. COVID will become an endemic disease.
but we can always be frightened and that can always be leveraged against us. Well, you know, and kind of to your point, uh, you know, as you were publishing this book, the vaccines had just come out and you were saying, well, this looks like it should be a happy ending. It looked, it looked very promising. But at the same time, you were noted that you're already seeing some of the same sort of coercive scapegoating type language that, that was associated with the previous policies, you know, to kind of, I guess, that were intended, I guess, to get us to the vaccines uh, in the first place. And so I, I guess I should say, I think, you know, everything you wrote in there, it's, it's aged remarkably well. In fact, I, I couldn't find anything in your book that is, uh, you know, remotely not correct a year after it was published, which I think is quite an achievement on your part. Thank you. That's very kind. I'll take that. I mean, I, I hope that we were very careful about fact checking. The book went through, obviously, the editor, the publisher and two fact checkers. And I tried to be as circumspect and proportionate as I could all the way through. And where something is not a fact, where it's an opinion, um, it is stated as such. It's either someone's opinion in an interview or it's my speculation. So I'm very clear about separating that out. Yes, when I wrote the chapter about the vaccines, if I'm honest, um, I had a really bad feeling in the pit of my stomach. Nothing to do with the safety or the efficacy of the vaccines. I stay completely well away from that. I feel like that's just a lane I can't get into as well as being in this lane. But I was really worried about the panoply of incentives and coercions that we could already see beginning. And the kind of um, the tone, the tone was, that was beginning to come through in the media about unvaccinated people, which was following on from sort of a tone we'd had about asymptomatic and infectious people, people being described as epidemiological time bombs or weapons or bioterrorists, you know, these quite dehumanising and um, objectifying language about people because people became the weapons, they became the vectors of transmission and whereas, you know, in a normal war, we have geopolitical borders. In a war on a virus, the borders are just the air between our skin. So I was already, I was already worried about that. And um, yeah, I think, unfortunately, I, I have been proven correct. There's a report that came out, well, a, an article from the head of the UK's Nod unit just today, actually. And one thing that he talks about is what's worked and what, what hasn't, and says that actually offering financial incentives to take the vaccine was a bad idea. Well, this was pretty obvious to me and to, I think, lots of people. If you're going to have the vaccine anyway, you don't need to be offered £20 or whatever to have it. You're going to have it. If you're not sure if you're going to have it, well, that might persuade you, but then having the vaccines become about a financial incentive. Well, I'm not going to have the next one and then the booster and then the fourth booster and then every year for the rest of my life in perpetuity unless you pay me. But what it also does is create a quite entrenched group of people who were not quite sure about the vaccine, a bit suspicious. I don't want to use the term anti-vax. I find it annoying or vaccine hesitant. Maybe they're just not sure about this vaccine and they just want to wait a bit and they think, well, hang on, you're going to pay me. Why? What's special about this vaccine? You didn't pay me for measles or diphtheria or tetanus. Well, now I'm really not sure. And so it doesn't ultimately, it might create a short term net shift in behaviour, but what does it do medium term and long term to trust? So around the world, we've had these insane incentives. I mean, in Washington, there were jabs for joints. You had in the US, you had raffles for college education. And I mean, that's some serious prize to get vaccinated. 
in a country where college education's expensive, right? Um, in Vienna, in Austria, you could have a free session with a prostitute in a brothel in exchange for your vaccine. Here in the UK recently for uh, children, they had a petting zoo at a vaccination clinic so that children who were stressed could stroke sheep. I mean, it's just completely bizarre. But I think even more concerning than the incentives, which we've never done for a vaccine before, are the coercions. Um, you know, there are countries where you need jabs for jobs. You, you can't work or you can't go on public transport, let alone go to a restaurant or to a concert or a sporting event unless you're vaccinated. So you create this division between the clean and the unclean, the obedient and the, the non-compliant. And vaccine passports, of course, were the ultimate nudge because there was never a good public health case for them because the vaccine doesn't stop transmission. They were the ultimate carrot and stick. Here, if you have the vaccine, we reward you by letting you into places. You get your treats, your rewards. But if you don't have it, you're on the naughty step, you're in the corner, you get excluded from society. But even to the degree that you can't participate in economic life. So it's the ultimate sanction. And actually, of course, we're seeing countries roll back from that now, which shows even more that it was just a behavioural psychology tool, which some people will agree with. Personally, I find it sneaky, underhand, devious, blackmail, and I think it's a, a really gross way for governments to treat citizens. Well, and it's it's I'm not even just reminiscent, but it's effectively a social credit system, or at least the beginnings of one. Um, you know, what we see, you know, active in, to mention China again, under the Chinese Communist Party, um, you know, you, if you've done the wrong thing, you know, you've had the wrong thought and you've verbalized it, you can't take the train the next day. That's how it works over there. Well, absolutely. And I think that is a genuine risk. But we also have to be careful about our confirmation bias. So we were talking earlier about what we tuned into at the beginning of the pandemic. Now, I've learned that I seem to be programmed to be quite fearful and resistant of authoritarianism. I'm not a fan. You were immediately suspicious of China. What are they hiding? What's worse than they're saying? So we both kind of um, had an approach that was dependent on our, our own psyches. So I also look at the vaccine passport and I think, uh-uh, this, uh, this is social credit. I don't like this at all. Um, but it's not necessarily a precursor to social credit, but we have to be realistic about how things can be rolled out. So here in the UK, the government announced that they would be trialling a health app. So um, if you do the right things, that could be eating the right amounts of fruits and vegetables or buying them, whatever, from the supermarket, which will probably be linked up with. Or if you're walking enough steps, then you get rewards of some nature. And, um, you know, you'd also be incentivized to go for your health checks. Now, I, I hear something like that and I think, well, butt out. I don't want you, I don't want you, the government, to even think about how many steps I'm walking or reward me or check out what, you know, what health checks I'm going for. That's that's my business as, a, as an individual and an adult and a responsible person. It's my choice. But you can also see how that can be linked with digital ID and especially digital ID that permits entry into places or permission to work. And I think that it is right that even if we have confirmation bias, we hold them absolutely to account about what this is for, where it's going, the legal parameters. And we say no if we don't like it, because after all, government are supposed to be working for us. Um, we invest our authority in government to do what we collectively want as a society. It shouldn't be a top-down imposition of something that we don't want, not in a democracy. You know, you reference uh, Edward Bernays uh, many times in the book, 
it certainly captured my attention to want to read more into his work. The original book, Propaganda, I think it was called. You know, and ostensibly he was, what he was doing was for the good of society, or at least that's what he believed, right? Is this kind of the birth of a different way of approaching people, like, and not just government we're talking about here, but, you know, frankly, there's almost a kind of a now a messaging war to get people to do different things, whether it's for products, you know, competing for product attention or apps uh, in social media content. I've been kind of wondering to myself, are we kind of in the midst of something where it's a, it is actually a kind of war, of war of propaganda being hoisted on us that we were trying to kind of deal with? But this is a very different, I think a very different situation than humanity had even maybe 150 years ago where information wasn't so omnipresent, you know? I think that's true. I think we're at a really acute phase. So Benes is known as one of the fathers of propaganda. He actually, um, coined the term public relations when propaganda started sounding a little bit iffy but we know we know that propaganda really took off with with world war one i think that all the work that he did has just developed and become more sophisticated and these days i think of us as being blown about by our passions our irrational choices as the paternalistic libertarian behavioural scientists like to think of us and social media and very sophisticated behavioural science. I think of it as being like an information battlefield. In a way, every time you engage with the media and social media, you need to be aware that someone is trying to persuade you of something. You know, sure, go on, get the information you want, get the entertainment you want, but try to use everything consciously. Try to be Try to be sure what you want to use it for. Now, I'm my own worst example because I can do the slot machine effect on Twitter for ages. And I'm very much its, its slave, not its, its mistress, quite often. But ideally, we should be trying to engage with media as, as consciously as possible because there are advertisers, there are governments, um, there are all kinds of people, and there are bad actors on there trying to persuade you, nudge you, manipulate you the whole time. Well, let, let's talk about the role of media here, because, you know, you did mention this enormous spend that was uh, uh, basically given to media to promote uh, the government's position on, on, on how to deal with the virus. Um, in Canada, there was this, I don't know if it was exactly a bailout, but I think it was like something like $600 million was distributed to media. But there's just media itself seems to have been taken on a much larger role of telling you what to think as opposed to trying to give you information so you can figure out how you want to think. Mm. I wonder if it's always been like that. I just don't know. I had a real epiphany during COVID and became very alert to the language and um, analytical about it. But it's certainly been the case during the pandemic management. The thing is, uh, if, you, if you have governments giving media a lot of money, that has the potential to create an unhealthy relationship for the government to be the biggest advertiser with national newspapers broadcasters is not it's not the ideal relationship for a free media but that doesn't mean it necessarily did influence it but there are other factors also at play you know you've got editor and proprietor biases you also have preferential relationships between politicians and political journalists and in the very fast-paced 
situation in pandemic, perhaps things weren't always verified as quickly as they could be. Things go through the newsroom really fast. And perhaps there wasn't enough diligence about checking things. I think activist journalism is another problem. So look at look at anything uh, Trump said automatically had to be wrong and bad. And then, you know, a huge swathe of uh, the political establishment, the media and the people take against it because, you know, the bad orange man said it. I think of myself as quite apolitical and I wouldn't necessarily think that one politician holds holds court to the truth on an epidemic. I, I want to hear what everyone's got to say. But there was this very hyper-partisan approach in the media, which meant that the opposition to um, policy came from within the framework and never from outside. It wasn't, what does lockdown mean? Should we lock down? What's the evidence? Where's it been done before? It was, well, if the Conservative government are finally locking down now, why didn't we do it earlier? We should be doing it harder. We should be doing it longer. So the direction of travel was always to criticise the government and push for more of what they were doing rather than really step outside the framework. And I think, honestly, that a lot of journalists aren't really that numerate. And that's another problem. Well, I, the... I'm not that numerate. I've had to work very hard at it. And I've got a couple of maths friends that I, I go to when I, I need help with things. Um, but I, I think that's been, it's been a big problem that a lot of journalists don't have good enough science heads for this. Well, not, not good enough science sense, but also a kind of a strange credulity to authority that isn't, frankly, almost like the opposite of what media was supposed, supposed to be truth to power, right? Uh, or something like that. Yes, yes, I agree. I suppose that's part of a, a wider cultural trend. As I was reading, I kept thinking about this concept of informed consent. Um, you know, when it comes to medical interventions, right, the vaccines in particular, um, but frankly, any, um, there's this idea that you have to know the risks. So just broadly speaking, right, now I don't, I don't mean necessarily specifically of the vaccines because that's the, but that's the, the obvious example. When you're doing this nudging, right, you're, you're doing something that people aren't aware of, right? So it's almost like the concept of informed consent just gets totally thrown out. It, it, do you see it that way? Yes, yes, you've gone straight to the heart of it. It's something that really, really bothers me and it comes out more by the end of the book. I think it is absolutely wrong for us to be paying our taxation towards activities to shape our behaviour when we're not aware that it happens. Now, I think we need public inquiries in countries where they have behavioral science units to, you know, we need to be consulted. There needs to be a debate about this. And in fact, going back to 2011 in the UK, which is just after the inception of the nudge unit, there were suggestions, there were calls to hold a public debate. Because the thing is, we, we pay our taxes to government and the government does stuff that we know about. We have this transactional relationship. We're investing authority. We're giving permission for them to lay down rules because we've said, yes, we voted for you based on what's in the manifesto. Now, as soon as a government starts employing subliminal methods to change your behaviour, the transactional relationship has changed. And then that leaves you as a citizen, once you realise, feeling disenfranchised, deceived. It's changed our relationship with the government. 
So yes, I think there's a, a kind of an informed consent angle to this, but not just that, I think it's fundamentally anti-democratic. It's the politician's job to put forward good ideas and then you vote for them and then they enact them. It is not their job to get voted in, have good ideas in a room with closed doors and then work out sneaky ways to make you go along with it. There's also a lot of unelected people that are, you know, kind of in there for a long time. They, you know, would in the US, we call it the administrative state. And frankly, you know, just looking at the last few years, right, I don't think you could have a better example of uh, why it's a bad idea to have people making decisions like this without let's say extensive public participation. The argument is sometimes you need to make decisions quickly, right? But if you see these decisions being made, poor decisions being made, those decisions being doubled down upon despite uh, evidence being presented and again and again, it, it, it begs this question, right? Of how does this, does this make sense or is this a, now a foregone conclusion? Is this how things are gonna work going forward? I would say I'm not really sure about decisions needing to be made quickly because a coronavirus and a pandemic are very known risks. They are on the National Risk Register in the UK. It'll be exactly the same in the US and I think every country around the world. This was a known risk. There were pandemic plans. Deviating in such a severe and radical way was a danger. And so this is why decisions like this aren't made in the teeth of the crisis and why, why there are pandemic plans, why they exist. There's literally you know, almost a guidebook for what to do, even if some things are different. And yes, I think it is definitely a risk when you've got unelected health bureaucrats or psychocrats even, as I call them in the book, who are involved in making these decisions behind the scenes. Now, it, it took off in the UK and the US around the same kind of time because you had Cass Sunstein who was working in the Obama administration. And he's, you know, he's literally the author of the book, Nudge. Um, there's, what, there's one um, example from him, which I think is quite interesting. He wrote a paper called Conspiracy Theories quite some years ago. And one thing that he recommended in it was that because conspiracy theory is so dangerous, what governments should do is have covert agents that go into chat rooms and dispel the conspiracy theories. Now, this is, this is how they think. This is how the behavioural scientists think, that the way to dispel conspiracy theories is have secret people that infiltrate chat rooms to dispel the conspiracy theories. You almost couldn't make it up. And, you know, similarly here in the UK, we've got the Research Information Communication Unit that works with agencies who work with grassroots agencies to do work to influence behavior and, and change. And those grassroots agencies don't even know they're working with the governments. Um, I interviewed somebody who worked for one of the agencies in my book, completely anonymously, about the sort of work that they've done, you know, and penning those propaganda plans. So this kind of really sneaky covert work happens, and some people will think there's a place for it, but it is essentially quite deceptive. And I think really the best way to persuade people to have a vaccine as you give them the information, let them decide. The best way to dispel conspiracy theories is don't go undercover and infiltrate their chat rooms, give people the information, let all the information be out there and let, let people come to their own decisions, allow free speech and debate and openness. This is actually quite important right now. Right now we're in the midst of this Russia-Ukraine war, Russia invaded Ukraine. And of course, Russia is best in class in disinformation from my perspective, from everything I know, and they're using a lot of it. At the same time, when I look at the 
um, a lot of the information coming from the West, I, it's hard for me to look at it in any way differently than war propaganda, which frankly you would expect at a time of war, actually. It's part of doing war, right? And just sort of watching this happen and think, okay, it's very hard for us if we're not kind of intimately familiar with the information to really try to understand what's going on. Some people even argue that's the purpose to have you kind of on, to keep you on your toes and not knowing. Um, but what struck me is that, you know, are, are we just in this kind of ever-present escalating realm of war propaganda? I touched on this a little bit earlier, right? But, but, it's, but this, is, this is, you know, very, very serious, aggressive messaging to have people um, have the courage to fight or, for example, right, would be one of the reasons you would use it and, and many, many other reasons. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, Russia, the home of chess players, they are brilliant at propaganda. But it would be naive to think the propaganda is only on one side. I mean, interestingly, somebody said to me on the radio today, oh, the West hasn't produced any propaganda about Ukraine. And I was momentarily stumped. I said, I, you know, I have to disagree. Um, for instance, the, the ghost of Kiev right near the beginning. Now, lovely story, amazing title. Sounds a bit like the title of a dark fairy tale. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Well, it was too good to be true. Same with the 13 signal guards from Snake Island. Not true. Actually, you know, RT reported that one correctly. And I'm not a pro-Putin, Russian cheerleading, RT-consuming person either. Not at all. But there is propaganda on both sides and it leaves you as the citizen, as the as the consumer of the news, a little bit adrift. And I think the problem with COVID is that it's red pilled people. You know, some people are now very aware of the propaganda, the behavioral science techniques, the appeals to emotion, specifically fear, and they feel cautious and you don't know what's true and what isn't. Well, you just have to try to be measured about it. I watched um, a documentary last night, Winter on Fire. And tonight I shall watch Ukraine on fire, which has been censored and banned. Therefore, because of the Streisand effect, I'm even more keen to watch it. So I'm trying to um, consume material from different sources and make up my own mind about things. The, one thing I found disappointing um, here in the UK about the media coverage is how highly emotional it is. Now, War and death and destruction are emotional. But I was listening to Radio 4 and hoping for really in-depth analysis of the geopolitical background. And what I heard was interviews with children who were leaving uh, Ukraine. And it was just very, very emotional. It was designed to pull on the heartstrings rather than inform you as unbiased news should do. And so it's, it is difficult. I, I don't know what the answer is. I think we need a really radical transformation in media. It, it, it's extremely difficult. And I mean, you know, we've had people on the ground in Ukraine reporting, um, you know, there's 1.5 million Ukrainian refugees are in Poland as we speak, and there's many more. We saw it, right, our, ourselves, so we know it's true. I mean, I'm, I'm, kind of, I'm kind of joking. I think it's, we can agree that that, probably all agree that that is definitely a reality. Um, Russia is the aggressor here, whatever the background, right? But there is this kind of reflexive response almost by some people that I'm seeing that are simply like, well, if, it, if, it's, if these, uh, you know, 
corporate media that have been propagandizing us about all sorts of things all these years, if they're saying it, therefore the opposite must be true. And maybe, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin is right in what he's doing, which is kind of, um, again, this is this is the cost of being in this kind of world, right, where, where media have lost their interest in truth-seeking and are kind of just pushing these various agendas. I'm deeply troubled by this. Well, I am too. And it was one of my um, major warnings in the conclusion to the book, that people would lose trust in public health and government. Because playing with people's emotions and fear is the steam in the engine of our emotions is wrong. And the control of information and the misinformation and the propaganda has created an atmosphere of distrust. This is why I say people have been red-pilled by COVID. Now, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't want to assume that everything that I hear in terms of public health or from the government or the media is wrong. The unfortunate truth is that I'm aware now it sometimes is wrong. And so you have to do that extra little bit of research and perhaps triangulate opinions and get different sources. Yes, of course, when we're talking about the Russia-Ukraine conflict, Russia's the aggressor. It's invading a nation. It's destroying buildings and lives and killing people. That's clearly wrong. But there is still propaganda on both sides. As you said, you get this in war. You get wartime propaganda. But it doesn't make understanding the situation simple for us once you recognize that there is propaganda. You know, you have a chapter in the book which I found was really fascinating. Um, Biederman's chart, chart of coercion and just kind of showing all the different methods. And I mean, it was, it's kind of stunning when you read this reference document. You go, yep, check. It looks like, seems like 90% of what's here has been utilized, right? Um, the other piece of it that, that, that I was just thinking about was just how you, basically you made the case that it's almost like kind of brought into a cult of sorts, right? That the, and that, that, that I found incredibly fascinating uh, that you made that connection. Is this something that you've been studying in the past or, and, and you, know, you just saw the, the hallmarks of this or how did you make that connection? Do you know, I think I had an immediate and visceral response to how people behaved at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, it felt like everybody else was jacked into a matrix that I wasn't jacked into. They'd all joined a secret cult and uh, I wasn't in it. There was just a, a feeling I had about it. Now about Biderman's charter coercion, this came after the interrogation of American prisoners of war in Korea. And I am not suggesting that our governments have deliberately tortured us with lockdowns. But what I was showing, what I was trying to show, is there are various methods which lead to a disorientation and a mental destabilization um, and create fear. So that's, that's what that chapter was about. Now, on cults, William Sargent said that the priest, the policeman and the politician have much to learn from each other. I think there's a type of leader that leans into these cult-like techniques. And in fact, a lot of the pandemic management did sound like it was coming from cult leaders. And again, this is, I'm not remotely suggesting that Boris Johnson is the leader of a cult or was trying to emulate a cult leader. But it wasn't just him, it was also public health advisors. You know, things like if you leave the cult, calamity will befall you. You know, if you break the rules, this will go on forever. Um, if, we, if we leave lockdown, the sky will fall in. And a lot of this was an illusion of control. Every time we were warned about things, they never happened. 
things like separating you from people now that again wasn't a deliberate intention I, I don't think governments were trying to atomize us to destabilize us and make us lean on them more but that is an inevitable result of the lockdowns we were quite socially atomized and people were getting their interaction from screens rather than from each other you know they weren't uh, cheering each other over a pint in the pub or on the golf course it was very we were living quite lonely and media-driven lives. So yes, I think I think there were these parallels with cult leaders, but possibly inadvertent and possibly a certain type of, of leadership. I've been following, you know, various types of people who have been impacted, perhaps, you know, red-pilled was the term that you used, you know, during coronavirus, just sort of, I'm very fascinated by some of these stories of people that were just leading, you know, perfectly normal, un, you know, maybe unremarkable lives, you might say, just kind of normal part of society and suddenly something happens. And this woman, you know, basically her, her husband had a car accident in the midst of COVID. This was in Canada um, and there were lockdowns. And so she wasn't able, he, he died, but she wasn't able to have the closure. He didn't even die of COVID, but because of the rules, she couldn't, you know, basically have a normal funeral with him. Her point is, she's like, I'm never going to forgive the government for this, you know, and, and even in, you know, even in a situation where, you know, it might be justified, of course, we know now that it, it isn't, but, but that would be a questionable choice, I think. Yeah, it's, it's a very basic human right. There are ways in which um, the government management of pandemics influence all of our intimate human rights, birth, marriage and death. Now, in pandemic plans, you won't find that those things are interfered with in the, way, in the way that happened. You know, partners should always be at the birth and we need funerals. You know, people need this for grieving and for closure. It creates a very deep-seated trauma. I interviewed a, a veteran disaster recovery planner, Professor Lucy Easthope, for the book. She's in there a few times. And she said, she said to me, this will create trauma that lives on for many, many years. So one of the reasons that you have PPE in a pandemic is not just for the obvious, for uh, interactions between patients and, and doctors and nurses, it's also so people can visit sick loved ones and be with them, you know, and hold their hand when they die and go to funerals and, and look, at, look at the deceased's body. So to have cut people off from that is, is heartbreaking. There was a video that went uh, viral on social media here in the UK. It showed a, a funeral. It was um, CCTV footage. And everyone is seated, spaced out in this funeral. Automatically, it just makes you, makes you feel sad because, you know, having been to funerals of loved ones, you don't want to be two metres apart with a big gap of air around you. You want to be close. So they're seated along their part. And the two adult sons go up to the woman and, you know, whose husband's died and they put their arms around her and the funeral director stops the funeral, makes them go back to their seats. So, you know, the funeral director is following the rules. This is this Milgram experiment, the obedience to authority. But perhaps he shouldn't have followed the rules and perhaps actually allowing grief and human contact is more important. I think there will be a lot of people who you know, over the years are going to have to process quite deep-seated trauma about not being with their loved ones when they died or not having the funeral they needed. Um, you know, women who had difficult births, 
and didn't have their partner with them and then had postnatal depression. You know, there's going to be all these little, little, but very, you know, to the individual epic human stories to deal with afterwards. It wasn't just about, you know, the, the fallen, the people who died of COVID. There are so many other stories of human loss to contend with. And it didn't necessarily have to be that way. Laura, you in the book, you mention another, a very important book, They Thought They Were Free. I don't know, I don't know a lot of people who have read that book, so I thought it was very interesting that you picked that to look at, uh, which is, of course, you know, this was a very, um, I don't know, I, I think for lack of a better term, compassionate person, sort of someone who went in and interviewed um, people in Nazi Germany to try to understand after the war what they were thinking as they as they came in and he did it very dispassionately to to truly try to understand and this book is quite quite the work so why why did you choose to to include this there's a particularly moving quote that i included which is about it's it's a professor it's a german professor and he's describing how little changes happen in a society without you noticing and the metaphor he uses is a farmer who's growing corn. The corn grows day by day and you don't notice until one day the corn is above your head. And at times in the last couple of years, I have felt despair at the loss of humanity and compassion between people and the, the illusion of control and nonsensical rules. Um, and as I said to you before, my sort of driving factor with this book really was the human condition, our psychology, what makes us do things. And so this idea that things keep repeating in societies, that there are cycles, you know, when did we get to the stage when the corn was above our heads? You know, I think, I think as far as COVID goes, we've stopped, the corn's not above our heads, but maybe it got up to our chests. Um, I think it could have got worse. I think it could have got a lot worse because, um, Luckily, Omicron was milder and there's a high level of vaccination in people as well now, which is holding some severe illness at bay. And certainly here in the UK, we have party gates, which created a public level of frustration with, with politicians. So we've, you know, we've moved on from where we were. But how bad could it have gone if we'd had vaccine mandates and vaccine passports and we had dehumanised and othered a whole section of society and said, well, you know, you're the you're the unclean now. You're the you're the disobedient. And there were some shocking headlines about how the unvaccinated don't get to live like we do. The the sorts of headlines I I just I, I just couldn't believe I was reading in 2022 after the things that we've we've learned from other other societies. So that's why I included that quote um, because human beings and, and societies just seem to perpetuate the same things over and over. Just before we started the interview tonight, you mentioned that in New York, children are, little children are still masked, which I find deeply upsetting, deeply. Oh, just in their place of education where they need faces and to communicate, brilliant. Um, you know, and if, and if you're gonna mask one subset of human beings, that's possibly the worst subset to mask because they really can't manage masks hygienically and properly. So it's insane. There's no evidence that works. It's a, it's a very upsetting imposition on young children. But imagine trying to explain to the ancient Mayans that they don't need to throw children into watery graves in cenotes for the rain gods to come. 
you know, there's, there's ways in which humans sacrifice children over and over for quite non-scientific and uh, cruel reasons. And that's how I see this mask mandate. Why little children still wearing masks? It's, it's almost like a form of child sacrifice. I'm probably going to really annoy people over in the, in the US that hear this because you've been quite a masked up society. But um, I think it's cruel. It's going to affect their learning, their socialization. It's uncomfortable. What, what, are you, what, are they, what are they learning about the world? That everyone else has their faces out and they're masked. So, you know, this is actually, uh, you, you, you offer some really good advice in here, um, you know, for, you know, as a society, you feel there should be a very, I think your biggest conclusion is you want an inquiry into the use of these behavioral methodologies. The thing that I'm, I've been seeing a lot of people in New York, in New York, that are outdoors still wearing masks, ostensibly believe that this is somehow helpful. And I have looked at the literature around masks, especially outdoors. There isn't a huge benefit, to put it nicely. Um, there's this sort of, I forget who, who said this, but you know, there's this idea that it's very difficult to convince people that they've been fooled. It's easier to fool them than to convince them that they've been fooled or that they had it wrong, and that they, especially when they were kind of enthusiastically participating in something. That's me kind of embellishing the quote a little bit. And I find this deeply concerning because I have, I've, I've seen, you know, footage of people in front of City Hall here in New York, you know, basically singing songs about how everyone should be masked at this point because, you know, they're, they're afraid, I guess, you know, some, something happened there and they, they feel strongly enough that they, they believe everyone needs to be masked and they feel threatened. As we're kind of finishing up here and thinking about, you know, how to move forward as a society, you know, it feels like some, there were some things that were really broken here, and I don't know how to fix them at this point. Mm. I think that's true because something so unnatural was done to us. We're, we're a social species and human contact was impeded. Our most sacred human rights were interfered with. Our communication was curtailed. Our basic human rights were curtailed. Yes, yes, we've, we've changed. Um, I mean, on the masks, no, the... There is no good evidence in favour of using masks to stop a virus, an airborne virus, especially not cloth and surgical masks. Yes, if you were an FFP3 or an N95 and it's fitted and you use it hygienically, the idea of toddlers in a preschool wearing masks is just ludicrous. Um, but they weren't really about stopping transmission. They were signals. They were signals of danger. When you wear a mask, you're a walking billboard for danger there's an epidemic, be careful. They have also now over time become imbued with the symbolism of morality and virtue. Good people wear masks, good people of a certain class and a certain mentality, good people who put others first. Now there's a reason why we were told that your mask protects others. And that's not because it does protect others. It's because that the, the, the behavioral scientists know that appeals to helping others work better than appeals for your own safety. So, um, you know, there are, a, numerous interviews in my book that talk about how masks were signals and symbols. Some people, however, will need a soft landing. They're not going to rip their mask off and be immediately comfortable with that because they're like a comfort blanket. They're a crutch. They are now the vestiture of the faithful. It's made me wonder, you know, did every item of religious garb start in a moment of madness at some point? You know, why do we wear 
any of the things we do. I'm afraid I think of masks as being like religious garments. They, they offer a sense of protection, but no actual protection really. So they're really about the, the symbolism um, that, that is imbued with them. They, they sacralize virtue. What do you think at this point, Laura, is the best way forward? Um, and, let's, and let's talk about, you know, this specific area that you focused on. You're suggesting, you know, serious inquiries into the use of this. You know, I, I imagine there will be serious calls for the same in the U.S., even though, you know, there isn't as much information about what behavioral techniques specifically were used here, at least not that I've seen at this point. Mm, interesting that there isn't so far. Well, I, I mean, uh, people should have a look at um, well, the World Health Organization and Cass Sunstein, who heads up the, the WHO Behavioral Insights team and I think is still connected with the US government, do, do some digging around. But I don't think there will be serious calls for inquiry into the behavioral science approach. Not unless people clamor for it, because the thing is that behavioral science is incredibly useful to governments. It avoids the awkward debate, the persuasion that's needed. It avoids enacting legislation. You just nudge people subtly into doing what you want. I think it's a very cheap and reasonably effective and quite sneaky way to get people to do what they want. So I, I don't think that serious inquiries will be met with um, a, serious, a serious acceptance in government. I have already written a letter to uh, the Public Administration Constitutional Affairs Committee in in the Westminster government who will not be holding an inquiry for now into behavioural science. I imagine it will form part of the general inquiry into COVID because there is now a very wide acceptance that the fear-mongering was off the scale and I like to think that my book helped move a dial. I think really citizens have to take action, you know, you have to write to your representative and ask them about it. Um, we have to push back on governments that are doing it. So that's that's one thing. I, I think every citizen has power. We have to remember that we invest governments with authority. I think we need to show a lot of empathy to each other. It's very easy for people who don't like masks to be uh, frustrated with those who do and vice versa. They've become symbols of the tribe you belong to. You know, the covidiot versus the moral person or the clever person who never fell for the conspiracy theory versus the masked sheep, you know, whatever way you want to look around, it's become very divisive. But ultimately, we all have to find peaceable agreement with each other. And like I said, that, you know, as the pandemic comes to an end, some people will need a soft landing. It'll take them time to take their mask off and revert back to normal life because some people have been left somewhat terrorized. A psychologist coined a term called COVID anxiety syndrome and has identified that 20% of people are hanging on to obsessive hygiene measures and watching the news and are not ready to live normal life again. So I think we need to be tolerant. Well, I'm gonna read this uh, headline from uh, the Daily Mail. Um, did flawed PCR tests convince us COVID was worse than it really was? Britain's entire response was based on results, but one scientist said, says they should have been axed a year ago. So, you know, I, I happen to have seen in a string on Twitter of all sorts of responses of people in the UK just happened to be uh, to this particular headline. One person was suggesting this is like now nudge in the opposite direction, right? It's very, very interesting, right? Because obviously this messaging is very different from the, the bulk of the messaging over the last uh, however many years. Uh, what do you think? 
Okay, so I mean, one theory that I saw is that the the big testing labs will have had contracts with the government that would have seen them through to a certain period of time, and so therefore the testing continued because it's like a, a commercial obligation. You know, the sunk cost fallacy, you've paid for it, might as well use it. I do absolutely think there's some reverse nudge going on, and this isn't the first time we've seen it here in the UK. Um, I, along with others, raised questions about the validity of the PCR test to determine infectiousness and, of course, anybody that raised concerns was um, derided or uh, censored for it one way or another um, a year ago. Uh, something I tried to interrogate back in January 21 was the hospitalisation data because I had an inside source at NHS and I was looking at the data and it was clear that the big number, you know, how many people have been hospitalised each day, actually comprised people who went to hospital with COVID symptoms and with COVID. They're the true hospitalisation number, okay? But it also comprised people who went to hospital for something completely different, had a routine test and were found to have COVID. Now, it's important to know about them because you have to house them properly in the hospital. You don't want other people catching COVID from them. But that's not what the figure was for. The hospitalisation figure was to make you realise lots of people were going to hospital. It wasn't about managing wards. And thirdly, it comprised people who acquired COVID in hospital. So we were given one number that included three very different subsets. And I mean, I went back and forth with the NHS so many times to try to get this information. And this wasn't information that they wanted to share and dissect and provide at a granular level. But just recently, um, there's been a lot more talk about how the hospitalisation figure does include these different subsets and you can be hospitalised with, not just hospitalised from. And so the reason that we're getting this little chipping away at what the data means is to reverse people out of the fear. Because once you've frightened people, your only tools left are to, you know, really shockingly change the narrative into a whole new story or to just reverse them out, which in a way though is a bit sneaky because it's a bit gaslighting. Oh, did you think those numbers were big and serious? Oh no, sorry, they included this, didn't, didn't you realise? But you know, all that fear they created at the time when they were talking about the big numbers was real. So I think we have got what I'd call a reverse ferret going on, that we are being nudged out of the fear and that's why we're seeing these stories coming out now. Well, and then but of it's course, just speculation. Of course, and then there's a lot of people that are speculating that um, you know, the particular messaging around the war in Ukraine is kind of, you know, being used to divert attention, right, from from all of this that has happened. Let's help you. And frankly, is this something good that could actually help people move on? Well, I don't think so, because I think there are questions that have to be treated seriously. You know, certainly here in the UK, we need to be talking about what's happening to the PPE stockpiles. We do need to talk about how valid the PCR test means and the transparency of data, you know, we, we do pay for the NHS. I don't see why we shouldn't have accurate NHS data throughout a pandemic, including those subset of hospitalization figures. Um, we do need an honest inquiry. We shouldn't just be brushing under the carpet because there's a wall. I don't think the wall's being confected to change the story, but it does provide very useful dense cover for hiding stories, but we mustn't let that happen. Any final thoughts, Laura? This has been uh, wonderful. Oh, and, I, and I should add, this is a must-read book. Um, it's a year old, but it has aged incredibly well. And uh, I think anyone interested in this topic will do well to, to give it a read. Thank you. Um, no, 
I mean, it's been we've we've covered so many subjects. It's been it's been really interesting talking to you, and I'm so grateful you think it's aged well. It's uh, obviously it's certainly what I hoped. And although it's specifically about the UK, I think that over time it's been clear to me that it's quite a good case study internationally. It's now in Spanish and Spain, and it's going into other countries because there does seem to have been this kind of synchronized approach in terms of the behavioral psychology across countries. So I think that it will it will resonate. And after all, fear is is a very basic, it's the strongest, it's the strongest human emotion, it's very basic. So it will it will resonate with people in different countries probably. Well, Laura Dodsworth, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for watching this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Jan Jekielek. We live in an age of censorship and disinformation where some of the most prominent voices, most important voices, aren't actually being heard because they're being suppressed. I invite some of these people onto the show, onto American Thought Leaders. So to stay up to date on the most recent episodes and our exclusive content, you can actually sign up for our newsletter at theepochtimes.com newsletter. Just hit the checkbox for American Thought Leaders. Thank you.